God created the world by the power of his word. God spoke the world into existence in accordance with his eternal decree, and he continues to execute all that comes to pass in this world by the power of his word. J.I. Packer captures this truth so well when he says, God's word is his executive instrument in all human affairs. Of him as of no one else, it is true that what he says goes. Honestly, that's offensive speech in our world today, is it not? Whether people realize it or not, whether or not they like it, what God says goes. Always. He does not need to check with us first to see how his words will make us feel. He does not consult with us to see if we will sign off on the validity of what he has to say What God says goes. It stands. It is his truth. So it is always delusional to think we can marginalize the importance of God's word, that we can rewrite that word, and certainly as some think that it can be destroyed. God's word is unalterable. It is unbreakable. It is ever preserved against any force of evil that assaults it. We find support for these assertions in a memorable narrative taken from the ministry of the prophet Jeremiah during the waning days of Judah's kingdom. Before considering the account, it's really important that we have it set in the right historical setting. Giving that background will help come alive, some of the, help some of the text come alive. Remember the, the, on the map here, the, the blue shaded area is Israel, and they're long gone. Some 120 years ago, they've been taken captive to Assyria to the north. To the south, the southern kingdom of Judah still stands in the orange area here uh, pictured. It's all that's left of God's chosen nation, and Judah is tottering on the verge of collapse in 605 B.C. 30-year-old King Jehoiakim is on Judah's throne. He is a godless man. He despises God's word, in part because God never tells him what he wants to hear. It's always bad news as far as Jehoiakim is concerned. So he despises God. He despises his truth. Now, the year of this narrative, 605 B.C., uh, before, that year before, Babylon defeated Egypt at the Battle of Carchemish. And Pharaoh retreated down the coast of the Mediterranean Sea back to Egypt with his tail between his legs. Now, he's back in Egypt. Babylon, as you see here on the, the red snaky line there, has made their way up to that battle, and the army of Now King Nebuchadnezzar is making its way down along that same coast. Nebuchadnezzar has recently ascended to the throne and he is anxious to show the world what he can do. Crushes Egypt's army and now comes down the coast and also crushes the Philistine army at Ashkelon just to the west of Jerusalem. So Nebuchadnezzar, this recently ascendant king, is breathing down Jehoiakim's neck. 
And Jehoiakim desperately wants to believe that Egypt will come to his aid. Egypt will show up. They will come back north. They will get things together. And they're going to help me. They're going to protect me from Nebuchadnezzar. But we've already read today in Jeremiah 26 that God sends word to the prophet Jeremiah who assures Jehoiakim that God's patience with Judah's rebellion against the Lord has run its course. Pharaoh Necho will not come to Jehoiakim's aid, but Judah will be conquered and will be hauled off back to Babylon in exile. So Jeremiah insists again and again that Jehoiakim yield to God's declarative executive word. God has spoken and what God says goes. The only sanity here, Jehoiakim, is to yield to what God has said. Sentence is passed. God will punish Judah with 70 years in exile, but Jehoiakim refuses to believe. It's not what he wants to hear. Certainly Egypt will come to my aid. Certainly Egypt will win the day for us. Well, as you can imagine, in this setting, Jerusalem is in great turmoil as they await the inevitable attack of the Babylonian army from the west. As the narrative unfolds, we find that God's word in this setting is written down and is read to the people. Verse 1 of chapter 36, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, the word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, take a scroll, write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way, and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Now, Josiah, you remember, was a godly king. He honored God's word. Jeremiah's career as a prophet started in that ideal environment. It was a good day to be a prophet of the Lord in Josiah's court. But this is now 22 years later, and times have changed. Some 22 years after his start under Josiah, God instructs Jeremiah to put into written form now the sermons that he's been preaching over these years. The spoken and the written word work very well in tandem. The spoken word communicates uniquely in the moment the truth of God. But the written word provides a permanent, objective, precise record for posterity. So Jeremiah is to commit his prophecies to writing, the gist being that God will execute judgment against Judah for violating God's words. Babylonian exile is the next stage in redemption history. Like it or not, unless Jehoiakim repents, Israel repents, and they receive the forgiveness of the Lord in this 11th hour appeal. Verse 3. Verse 3 is God's purpose. He wants the nation to repent. He doesn't want to destroy the nation. He wants them to respond. But he puts out the word and says, this is the deal. This is how it is. 
So Jeremiah has been preaching over all these years, prophesying all of these years, and now puts his message together with God holding out this last moment of hope. Perhaps that's where you are today. Your sin separates you from God, but you want things your way. You love your sin, you love your plan, you love things to go the way that you want them to go, and the word of God gets in the way. Know this about God's character. God is patient. He is gracious to us in our sin. He holds out hope. He continues to woo us back to himself. God is patient. He loves repentance. He loves for people to seek his forgiveness. Know this about God. But as assuredly as you know that, know also that God's patience must come to an end. At some place along the line, if God does not act with justice against our sin, He becomes part of the problem. He becomes unholy. So there's a day when He must act. When patience must end and justice must be served. So if you find yourself in that spot, know that God is merciful. He's reaching out. He's waiting. But know as well that that time will end. And so it brings us ultimately, all of us, to that final place of decision. We can choose to bear the just punishment of our own sin, or we can put our trust in Jesus Christ to pay the penalty of our sin in our place. Ultimately, that's where he's bringing us. Ultimately, that's why his patience endures your sin. Why you continue to reject his word, continue to walk away from him, and he doesn't do anything. It's because he wants you to come to that place where you say, I see that Christ has died for me. And I put my trust and my confidence in the justice that has been served by him paying the penalty of my sin. So that God is just, he remains holy, but also the justifier of those who trust him as Savior. That's the good news which brings us to worship today. That's the good news that leads us to sing of his saving grace on the Lord's day. That mercy, perhaps in this very message, is being extended to you. Respond. Come to the Lord. Trust Christ. Well, that message was there in different terms, but in very real terms for Jehoiakim and for Judah, the nation, to turn, to come to God, to turn from their sin. We read then in verse 4 that Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord that he had spoken to him. So through this 20 plus years of ministry, he's putting down the essence of what he has taught and said and 
uh, Baruch is writing this down. He writes it down in a book. The book of that day was a scroll, the paper of papyrus, somewhat similar to what we would have coming, coming out of pulp. And then animal skins was another way, stretched and dried and glued together to create this long roll. The binding of the book was achieved by one of two wooden rollers. Uh, one would suffice, two worked a lot better. Uh, what, what is the content of the scroll? That's really what's important, not how did the scroll look, how did the book look, but do remember it's set up here. It'll come into play later. But what's really significant here in verse 4 is the subject matter. And what is that subject matter in verse 4? It is the words of the Lord. The words of the Lord. That's what is here in the written text. God's word. Verse 5, And Jeremiah ordered Baruch, saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord, so you are to go, and on the day of fasting and the hearing of the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you have written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out of their cities. I mean, if you're tracking with the context, that was not a happy word for Baruch. Uh, well, I'm supposed to write down what you say. I'm not supposed to go read it. This is dangerous. Reading these words to the people gathered at the temple could end in death. Why were they fasting? Well, again, in the context, it's, it's quite clear. We need God's help. Egypt has, crushed Car, uh, has been crushed at Carchemish, and Nebuchadnezzar has defeated the Philistines at Ashkelon along the coast. We must seek the Lord's favor. We must lay aside food. We must fast and seek his help. Which being interpreted as we really don't care to hear what he says, but we want him to perform for us. We want him to rescue us while we reject what he says. We reject his authority. We want to go our own way. But they're pouring out their soul to God. Come to our aid. Help us. And on that day of fasting, people come pouring into Jerusalem from the countryside to beg God's mercy. The way of mercy is going to be shown to them in the very words of this scroll as it's read. But first of all, let's go back. What, what is Jeremiah just, I mean, what's, why can't he go to the temple? Some have said, well, it might have been ceremonially unclean. I can't go. I think the answer is more in what we've read earlier in Jeremiah 26. Remember when he read that message of what God was saying to Israel, they said, kill him. I think, I think what he's saying is, I can't go there. They're going to take me out because they know these are my words. I mean, it's not going to be a whole lot easier for Baruch, but... He's got a better chance of surviving this. So he says, you go and you read the scroll to the people. Verse 7. Now notice here how verse 7 links with verse 3. Verse 3 is God's intention that they would relent, that they would return. Verse 7, Jeremiah says, it may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against this people. The message is crystal clear. But the opportunity is there for them to turn and to repent. And that's what Jeremiah wants ultimately with this. One can at least hope 
And so dutifully, verse 8, Baruch the son of Neriah did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about reading from the scroll the words of the Lord in the house, in the Lord's house. That's the summary statement. And now we're going to move in the narrative closer at hand, closer to the scene. In verse 9, he resets the context for us. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Then, verse 10, in the hearing of all the people, Baruch read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the secretary. Read there, secretary of state, which was in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. So the temple proper was elevated on a large platform that stood above the lower courts where the people would gather. And there were small living quarters, chambers, little apartments that ran along the length of each side, uh, the long sides of the temple. And there would be a, a window or the like where Baruch stands in Gemariah's chamber looking down then on the court below, much like I'm standing here looking down on you on the court below. So it was a perfect setting and it led for a little bit of distance between the two as well for his safety. And by the way, Gemariah is a good guy. He, he, he loves God's word and he's helping Baruch read Jeremiah's scroll here. So looking down upon the people, he reads the text of God's word. Now, somewhere in the scene, Gemariah's son, Micaiah, hears Baruch reading, and he's struck by what he's hearing. Soon he hurries off from the temple courts, heading south, not very far, down to the king's palace nearby. We learn then, secondly, that God's word is read to officers of the king's court. Verse 11, when Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, that is, as Baruch's reading it at the temple, he went down to the king's house into the secretary of state's chamber. And all the officials were sitting there. Councils already gathered. Elishama, the secretary, Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, El Nathan, the son of Achbor, Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the officials are there. So these men are gathered. What are they doing? They're not having a casual luncheon. They, this is a war council. Babylon is coming upon us. We are in big trouble here. What are we going to do? It's a day of national fasting and mourning in the midst of a national crisis that threatens Judah's very existence. And Micaiah interrupts this meeting with news that he knows the council is going to want to hear. Verse 13, Micaiah told them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the scroll in the hearing of the people. Then all the officials sent Jehudi, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Shelemiah, son of Cushi, to say to Baruch, Take in your hand the scroll that you read in the hearing of the people and come. Come to us. So Baruch the son of Neriah took the scroll in his hand and he came to them and they said to him, Sit down and read it. And Baruch read it to them. Now sitting down was the posture of a rabbi in Israel. And so they're, they're demonstrating here some measure of respect for the man. 
He sits down and he reads the scroll. Verse 16, when they heard all the words, they turned to one another in fear. Certainly fear for their physical life, but this is fear of God. They're hearing his word. They're realizing what God is saying, the warning that's there. And they respond in fear. Verse 16, they said to Baroque, we must report all these words to the king. Then they asked Baruch, tell us please. I mean, hear what they're doing. We've got to get this right. How did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? Are these just your political ideas? Or is this truly the word of the, of the Lord from the prophet? Verse 18, Baruch answered them, He dictated all these words to me while I wrote them with ink on the scroll. <laughs> He's being very precise. This is exactly what happened. And the official said to Baruch, verse 19, Go and hide you and Jeremiah and let no one know where you are. I think that probably means don't even tell us. You get lost because your life's in danger. King hears these words. It's very possible that this is going to be seen as treason. You're discouraging the people. You're speaking against our best interests. You go hide. Find Jeremiah. Get him in hiding. You need to be protected. Again, it indicates some level of belief and the fear of God on the part of these officials, some of who were connected to godly King Josiah in the past. We find then third that God's word is read to King Jehoiakim. So read to the people in verses 1 through 10, to the king's officers in this meeting in verses 11 to 19, and now read to King Jehoiakim himself, verse 20. So they went into the court to the king, having put the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. Then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama the secretary, and Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. The setting, verse 22, was the ninth month. That would be by their calculations, not September, but December. And the king was sitting in the winter house, and there was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. Just briefly, the winter house isn't a different house. It's a room within the palace compound. But it's an interior room to isolate from the exterior colder walls during the winter. Along with that, there was a depression in the middle of the room. And in that fairly significant depression, a fire pot that would burn coal made of metal or clay would then heat the room with the heat rising and and protecting the room from the elements outside. And often they were positioned to catch some of the summer sun. So a warmer room there, and that's the setting where the king is listening to this word. How will he respond? Verse 23, and Jehudi read three or four columns. Remember the columns on the scroll. He read three or four columns. The king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire in the fire pot. Until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. Now, let's stop here. What's happening? This king imagines that he can destroy God's word. No other reason for doing this. He thinks, I burn it, 
It's gone. It's that simple. God's word tells me what I don't want to hear. I'll just burn his word and it will cease to exist. It's gone. Is it? As that word goes up in smoke, what has happened to the word of the Lord? Does God's word cease to exist? Well, as far as the king and the officials are concerned, they laugh at us and look at, say, look at the smoke. It's gone. It's not there anymore. Verse 24, the king, his servants who heard all these words were not afraid. Nor did they tear their garments. That is, they did not have the fear of God that this group of officials had. They don't care about this word. They burn it. They destroy it. It's done. Verse 25, even when they did this, even when Elnathan and Deliah and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he wouldn't listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, and Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch, the secretary, to seize Jeremiah, the prophet. But the Lord hid them. Don't let that phrase drop. The Lord hid them. I don't think that probably means that God had them teleport somewhere or put a force field around them, some miraculous means. I think what that means is we would find that phrase, uh, the understanding of it providentially in Scripture, it likely means just that providentially through the ingenuity of their friends, he protected the secrecy of their location. Nobody figured out where they were. No one found out where they were. No opportunists hoping to curry favor with the king found them. Would have been granted a great prize for that knowledge. None of the king's officials stumbled upon information leading to their whereabouts. And that is utterly significant. If they had been found, God's written word to Jeremiah would have died with him. And any memory of it would have died with Baruch. The scroll burned. The prophet killed. His amuensis, his his secretary, dead. God's word is destroyed. But the Lord hid them. This is the king's delusion. Burn the scroll, kill the prophet, and you make the word of God disappear. Well, the next scene apparently taking place while Jeremiah and Baruch are in hiding reveals a vital truth about the nature of God's word. We see that his written word endures, though kingdoms fall. Verse 27, now after the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah and he said, take another scroll and write on it. All the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. Those are beautiful words. Get another scroll.
get another scroll. By providential means, not miraculous means, God preserves his word. And with respect to Jehoiakim, who thought he could destroy God's word, who refused to repent, the Lord adds this word of prophecy, verse 29. And concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll, saying, why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will cut off from it man and beast? Why have you written in it? Because that's what God says. That's why it's there. But this you have rejected, so, verse 30, therefore thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night, his exposed body a sign of curse. Having refused this last opportunity to repent, having sought to destroy God's word, God would now destroy him. We don't know the details of his death, but we do know, according to chapter 22, that Jehoiakim's dead body was dragged outside the city walls and dumped like so much garbage. All his plans for Egypt went up in smoke, figuratively speaking. And he was done, as was his lineage on, with any rule of autonomy from David's throne. He has a son that's on the throne, but he's just doing what Nebuchadnezzar demands. This curse was a prophecy, a prophecy that Jesus the Messiah averts only by virtue of his virgin birth. And the judgment against the king mirrors God's judgment of the nation that followed the king's godless ways. Verse 31, I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, but they would not hear. There's some wordplay here. Leave your evil, ra'ah. You have not, so I will bring evil, ra'ah. I will bring judgment upon this nation. Here's the beautiful words again, verse 32. Then Jeremiah took that other scroll, gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. More editing, more preparing, hearing the word of the Lord, putting it together, it all survived. His indestructible word. And so through the centuries, that word has survived. We remember Exodus where Moses smashes the stones that bear the words of the Lord to Israel, to his people. What did God do? He preserved those words on a new set of stones. As Rabbi Volpe observes, now that those stones are also lost, the words of the Lord endure. They are more indestructible than stone. So through the centuries, so many people hostile to God's word have sought to ridicule it, to renounce it, to ban it, to destroy it. 
But that indestructible word will stand forever. As the psalmist put it in Psalm 119, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Let man do whatever he will, that word is fixed there forever. As Jesus said, it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. It stands forever. As Peter said, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. It is indestructible. What God says goes. The providential preservation of God's written word involving human involvement, protecting, copying, translating, defending, passing on God's word from generation to generation. But it also involves God's sovereign protection of his revealed truth against those who would destroy it. In this case, to preserve two men being hunted down in a fairly small city. But God spares their life so that that word is sustained. Sustained so that God's people might believe its truth, obey its commands, and trust its promises, turning from sin to saving faith in Christ, crucified and risen. And here we have that word today. By means of providential preservation, that indestructible word saves, it sanctifies, it preserves God's people. Years ago, a Vietnamese man named Hain Pham trusted Christ as his savior through the witness of Chinese missionaries. But when communists came to power, the Viet Cong imprisoned Hein, accusing him of spying for the United States, in part because he was so good at English. He could read it, he could speak it, and had worked as a translator, so they just determined that he was helping the U.S. as a spy. They imprisoned him in a re-education camp and subjected him to brainwashing day after day after day, laboring to destroy his faith. It almost worked. With no Bible, with no believers there, hearing this message pounded into his head day after day, Hein finally came to the place where he said, I'm not going to pray anymore. And then to the place where he said, tomorrow. Tomorrow will be my first day as an atheist. The sun dawned, and he, as was the case every day, stood at attention while his commanding officer assigned him the duties for the day. He was assigned the most miserable job in the compound, to clean the latrines. Everybody hated that job. They were poorly maintained They were not capable of flushing the soiled paper. They were so poor. So the paper was put in waste baskets, reeking, collecting flies, 
attracting vermin. And that was his job then at the end of the day to collect these baskets and to dispose of this horrible garbage. Clean the entire day and he thought all along this just proves God isn't. This is a miserable place. He would deliver his child from this horror. But here I am cleaning the latrines on day one as an atheist. But as that first day drew to a close, something caught his eye in one of the wastebaskets. Unlike his captors, I knew and loved the English language, and so he knew what he was looking at when he saw some English on a piece of paper, and he took that soiled piece of paper, cleaned it off with water, and put it, hid it in his coat. That night, while everyone slept, he pulled out a flashlight. He removed the still damp paper from his pocket, and to his shock, it was a page from the Bible. Romans chapter 8. He read the words again, the words he loved. What then shall we say in response to all of this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who? Viet Cong? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword or latrine duty? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Day one as an atheist didn't end where it started. Hein wept. And his faith was there restored by the living and enduring word of God. Next morning, he asked the commanding officer if he could do latrine duty again. And the officer assumed that he was mocking him and said, yes, you can, and you're going to stay there as long as I say, day after day after day. Coming to realize, Hein, then, that it was actually that officer that was using that Bible for that reason. And continued to do so day after day as Hein continued to empty the basket, clean the pages, and read the scripture day, I should say night after night, by his flashlight.
feeding on God's word, Heinz survived the camp, eventually escaped Vietnam, his faith restored by God's indestructible word of truth. Nothing can stop that word. Lord, we pause before you to acknowledge our sin, to recognize how little we fear your word, how little we trust it, how little we read it, how little we commit it to memory, and how important it is to sustain our faith. May we be reminded by this word. A king can cut it up and burn it and put a price on the head of the prophet who alone knows its content, but you will be sure that your word is always preserved for your people, all that we need to know for life and godliness. We rejoice in that, and I pray for those without Christ that you draw them to the light of this indestructible word which will stand forever. Through Christ we pray.